There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. I'm ready to go. Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you do for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. Busy time in the NFL, and we are going to discuss all things NFL over the next few minutes with Paul Burmeister, my friend at NBC Sports, and my partner on this podcast. Later on, we're going to be joined by Nikki Jabvala of the Washington Post. Does a great job covering the Washington football team. A lot of news with that team and with that franchise, and we will get to that later in the podcast. Paul, I thought this week what might be really interesting for us to do is to basically discuss uh, after seven weeks of this season, entering week eight, to basically discuss what has really stunned us over the last month, month and a half as we've gotten into this season. This idea came to me on Sunday night uh, after the uh, results of uh, Sunday in week seven, The one thing I kept thinking, man, the Chiefs are such a shock. You know, I did not see uh, a bad Kansas City team coming. But then I also said, man, the Bengals are a shock too. You know, to be the number one seed after seven weeks in the AFC is pretty weird. And to have gone into Pittsburgh and Baltimore, obviously, is pretty incredible. So I called my old friend, Brent Musburger, and who's now uh, very close. He runs Vegas Sports and Information Network in Las Vegas. He lives for the Lions. And I asked him if the Bengals and Chiefs met this week healthy on a neutral field somewhere, who would be favored? And he said, the Bengals. And so to me, that just emphasizes how weird uh, the first seven weeks have been. Something weird always happens, but uh, those would be my two teams. But anyway, thanks uh, for hopping on, Paul. How are you doing? Doing well. It's uh, we we have quite a quite a storm here uh, going on in the Northeast. I I know you're in a bit of a high rise down there near the city, so you're safe. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it is uh, it's true football weather here. It's dark and it's wet. Good time to talk ball with you. Well, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the Monday night game in a while. But in my opinion, I thought that. The New Orleans Saints played a game that sometimes you have to win ugly in the NFL. You you have to take all of the things that are on the plus side of your ledger, namely Alvin Kamara, (laughs) and forget all the stuff on the debit side, which is you're a dome team and playing in crap weather is not really what you're used to doing. 
I thought it was a huge win uh, for the New Orleans Saints, even though uh, Seattle was diminished because of no Russell Wilson. I don't know how much of the game you saw, but what did you think? I thought it was a real gutty character kind of win for the Saints. And I, I always kind of see things through the, the headlines of uh, whatever is happening with the quarterbacks on a, on a given team, whether it's that week or just kind of their, their theme at that position for the whole season. And when we looked at the Saints this season, Peter, I think the number one concern, you know, going from Drew Brees into Jameis Winston was the turnovers. And everybody wanted to focus on what happened a couple of years ago in Tampa Bay when that number of his interception started with three. Uh, but he has only thrown three total picks this year. He didn't throw one last night. Now, I know he had a lot of what people are going to say easy throws to Alvin Kamara right in front of him. I mean, that was just smart football. Great job by him and by Sean Payton for, for drawing that up and for staying committed to it. Because, I mean, in one way, I think teams should do it more often because that's the guy closest to you. He's not getting the best or even the second or third best corner on him. So that was, uh, I thought, really solid game planning. But he's not turning it over. He's driving it downfield when he needs to. Uh, and, and they are proving they can win small ball with Jameis taking care of the football in a number of these games. So uh, big win, but bigger picture. Um, they're getting even a little more than what the optimistic person thought of what they could get out of Jameis at this point. Yeah, totally agree with you. Paul, let's go to... Uh, my little Musburger thought now. Um, I would pick Cincinnati and Kansas City as my biggest upside surprise and biggest downside surprise. I'll give you two sentences on both. Number one with Cincinnati, great additions on defense. Trey Hendrickson, I think he's got six sacks now, has really made that not sort of a paper mache defense anymore. And then Joe Burrow, look, I am leading the Joe Burrow parade. I said at the start of the year, I thought he was going to be uh, the reincarnation of Dan Fouts. I just think he's been absolutely terrific. But on the Kansas City side, what really would worry me is Patrick Mahomes is trying to make too much happen, period. That bothers me. Great quarterbacks have to know when you've got to go in the fetal position, take the sack, or when you, when you have to just throw it into the third row of the bleachers. I just, you know, he's such a great, even though you don't think of Patrick Mahomes as a warrior, I look at him in that way. They have to stop doing that. And the other thing is, man, that offensive line's just got to do a little bit better job in protection. I haven't even mentioned the defense, but man, until they get some of that offense right, I don't think even a top 10 defense is going to help them. But I've said too much on mine. Give me yours. You might agree that those are the two uh, teams that have surprised you the most. Yeah, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd like to, to tag on to Kansas City there a little bit, Peter. And to me, this is, I mean, it certainly counts as a surprise on the negative side that the Chiefs are struggling this much offensively. Uh, but I, I think it's as big a story, however you want to label it, as we have in the NFL right now that it's highlighted by the fact that they didn't score a touchdown this past weekend. And one of two things is going on, and I'd love to dive into it. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about it next week in detail. But one of two things has happened with that Chiefs offense. This theory that every single team in the AFC spent their offseason thinking, well, if we're going to advance, we have to find a way to beat Kansas City. 
They have either found a scheme that is working, a way to defend Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid that they didn't have in years past and executing it. That's, that's the first thing that might be going on. The second is, and this is the harder, harder conclusion to come to, and I think people are kind of afraid to say it because he's been so good and he's still so talented. Maybe Patrick Mahomes has really regressed that much. You know, maybe the offensive line struggling at the end of last year created some bad habits, not just with running out of the pocket when he shouldn't, but with how he's seeing it. Yes. Is he seeing it when he needs to see it? Because last yeah. year there were a lot of other things on his mind. But clearly one of those two things is front and center in Kansas City with that offense right now. And I think it's as big a story as there is in the NFL. You know, the one thing you just said is I, I really think that this has to do with what he's seeing and the fact that, you know, when you talk to, you know, when I've, I've read this, I've not talked to a defensive coordinator about what's wrong with the Chiefs, but I've read a couple of things from players about when you take away the two deep halves of the field mm -hmm. and make sure that Tyreek Hill becomes an intermediate weapon and not a deep weapon. You know, it's what the 49ers failed to do in the Super Bowl which is, you know, to protect the deep part of the field, uh, you know, against Tyreek Hill. And that's what led to that, I think it was the 42-yard completion uh, when the Chiefs were down 10 with eight minutes to go that led to their comeback in that Super Bowl. But right now, they are not getting anything really deep to Tyreek Hill. And I think that hurts the Chiefs for this reason. It makes everything in the middle of the field. Normally, you'd have some good middle-of-the-field routes for uh, Kelsey to take advantage of and, you know, to swing a back out of the backfield on a wheel route. And it's just so crowded there now. So to me, I look at what defenses are doing as being particularly frustrating. And look, I never thought I would say this about Kansas City, but – all the guys who they have just sort of let go. Um, and, and look, I, I have been critical a little bit over the years of Sammy Watkins. But Sammy Watkins would be an absolute boon to this team right now because it would give the other side of the field. You'd have to have respect for the speed on that side, on the other side of the field opposite Tyreek Hill. And right now, teams just don't have to do that. Yeah, I, I think that no matter which side you come down on, on, on the, the biggest reason for Kansas City's offense taking a pretty big step back, I think you'd have to agree that defenses have evolved against the Chiefs. And one thing we've always done with Andy Reid all the way back to his time in Philadelphia is he's earned the benefit of the doubt. And so let's, yeah. let's give him a chance for the next few weeks to see if his offense can evolve to change with how the defenses have changed playing them. And, you know, that would assume that Patrick Mahomes is there ready to be the Mahomes we've seen. Uh, but it, it certainly bears watching. Isn't it incredible when you think about it, Paul, that, you know, a month ago, you would have absolutely written in pen. You would have written it in Sharpie. Giants at Kansas City, Monday night, week eight. That is, you know, you do not have to watch that game. You know, that one's going to be yeah. 38 to 13. Yeah. And now, now that game is a little bit of a mystery. I, I will say this. It's a good get well foe for Kansas City. But 
as New York has shown, especially if they get one of their receivers back, and I think they might get Kadarius Toney back, if they get at least one of their receivers back, look, Kansas City has not shown that it can stop anybody, even a poor offense like the Giants. So all of a sudden, that to me looks like a competitive game. So we'll see. I think Kansas City is a great pick uh, in a disappointing way, in a negative way, to be the most disappointing team. I go to Miami for, for the one yeah. right after it, Peter. And, hey, you know, two is progressing. He's been fine. He's had some really bad moments these last couple of weeks. But he, I think there's been more good than bad. And he's not the main problem. It's that defense that was really the calling card. It was the reason they were 10-6 and six last year. Is the reason everybody felt good about them taking a step this year. The defense, I, I think, Peter, I think they've given up more yards than any team in the NFL. I think they've given up more points than any team in the AFC. And this team that had six losses all of last year, they already have six losses this year. And I, I think right after Kansas City, because of the hope and the energy created at the end of last year by that defense, I think they are the 1A to the next most disappointing team after the Chiefs. It's a great, great point. And, you know, I, I got a lot of criticism on Twitter on Monday of this week, um, a lot, well, whatever. Uh, and, and, and I got four or five emails. You know, how can you say that uh, Tua Tonga-Valoa uh, was just mediocre, whatever it is I said about Tua? in that game against Atlanta, he threw for four touchdowns. He did this, he did that, brought him back from 27 to 14. And my response to that would be, it was Tua's incredibly terrible interception yeah. as Miami was driving down 20 to 14. And he threw it right into the arms of an Atlanta linebacker. Ball got returned to the 10, easy touchdown drive for Matt Ryan. And so all of a sudden, it's 27 to 14. Okay, he made a great comeback, two touchdowns in the last 12 minutes or whatever. He is the reason why they had to make the comeback. You know, you can't tell me that that was a great game for the quarterback when the quarterback uh, turned the ball over on two interceptions that led to 10 points. Uh, And seven of the 10 were simple points. So to me, and look, Paul, I don't know how you look at it, but I think 13 games or whatever it is for two of 16 games is just way, way too little and too sparse a resume to throw Tua out. I just don't see it. I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's right. But you also have to ask this question. And again, I do not support trading for Deshaun Watson. I think if somebody is going to trade for Deshaun Watson, let them do it. I just think it's too dangerous, too problematic right now. It strikes me as too much of a panic move. However, if you're Miami and you feel like after a year and a half being around Tua, you have real questions, real significant questions about whether he's going to be a, a good uh, a playoff long-term quarterback, then you understand why that a team like Miami might be considering this. I don't know how you view it, but man, we have instantaneous, uh, you know, times when we have to look at quarterbacks and make judgments. 
I was telling somebody this the other day. I said, in, uh, in the early 80s, I will guarantee you if this was today's football, Phil Simms never would have led the Giants to two Super Bowls. And, and he was leading them to the second one, the Buffalo one, before he broke his foot against Buffalo on a Saturday afternoon in December. But, but you know, the point remains that Phil Simms was injured four of his first five years as a quarterback with the Giants. And he didn't play well when he played. So there's no question that he would have, in today's football, Phil Simms would have been jettisoned and they would have been on to the next guy. And I'm not saying that's the case for everyone, but I sincerely question whether the Giants would have got to either one of those Super Bowls without Phil Simms. So that's the danger of making these decisions on quarterbacks so early. Great context there with the whole Phil Simms comparison there back in the mid to late 80s and early 90s. Here's my feeling on Tua and, and the whole Dolphins thing, Peter. And I join you in the receiving all kinds of criticism about what we said last week uh, about Tua. I think he is a nice quarterback who's made good strides this year. Uh, let's back up to, to what you said last week about your, your top 12 quarterbacks. And I think at that point, Joe Burrow was just toward the bottom as your top 12. Is right. Tua anywhere near cracking that list? And the answer is no. You can think he is moving in the right direction, and maybe he's got a future there as a playoff quarterback. And you're right. They picked him there a year ago. They ought to stay with him and see if it works out. But right now, he's not in that space, even though he's getting better. And we remember most what we saw last. And this is a harsh way of looking at it for Dolphins fans. But think about what Tua did over the weekend and the, and the plays that you mentioned, the negative ones. And last night, Jameis Winston doing a really nice job in tough conditions. Who's the better quarterback right now? Who would you rather have for the next two years? It's Jameis Winston. And he's not anywhere near that top 12 list either. And that's, to me, that's the point. This is a guy getting better. But is he a top 12? Is he a top 20 quarterback right now? No, he's not. And there are other quarterbacks that you would rather have in that spot while you try and wait and figure out if he is indeed going to get there. Give me your team then on the plus side if Miami's your disappointing team. On the, on the positive side, it's Arizona. I know we're going to talk Arizona with their game this week coming up. So I went to the one right below them. To me, it's the Dallas Cowboys. And I don't know if you can find a team outside of the Cardinals that has exceeded even the, the, the most realistic of expectations that we're leaning on the positive side, who has exceeded them more than the Cowboys. I mean, if you wanted the Cowboys to be good this year, you thought, well, maybe Dan Quinn could get that defense to be a little better. I think they're quite a bit better. You know, maybe Dak can come back and be close to what he was before. This is the best version we've ever seen of Dak, including that rookie season when he was super productive. And who thought that Zeke was going to be averaging 20 touches and 100 yards per game? So pick a category where you evaluated the Cowboys in August. They're significantly better in all those major categories. So I'll take that team as the most positive, most surprising. I don't think anybody would be surprised that right now in the pecking order of each conference, Houston is number 16. And I'm talking about in, in, as the NFL does week by week playoff seedings, Houston is number 16 in the AFC and Detroit is number 16 in the NFC. So nobody would be surprised at that. But I'll tell you, anybody 
who before the start of the season had the top seeds after week seven being Cincinnati and Arizona. I want to go into business <laughs> with you because you're pretty good at projecting things. Paul, let's, uh, let's move on to a few quick hit topics now. Um, I, I, I want to know what you would do right now if you're Kyle Shanahan. In my opinion, you know, we could have easily picked San Francisco, either of us, as one of the most disappointing teams or the most. At two and four with an absolute mess at the quarterback position, when before the year you would have thought, hey, embarrassment of riches to have Jimmy Garoppolo and Trey Lance. And now Lance is still trying to come back from an injury. Garoppolo looks lousy. They have what I think is a really must game this week at Chicago. Give me your view of what you do if you're Kyle Shanahan right now. Yeah, disappointing certainly counts. They were a strong candidate there to, to fall into that conversation. I would stay with Jimmy Garoppolo, Peter, and I don't even think it's a tough call right now. And, and here's my read on that one. Kyle's had a number of chances to go with Trey Lance instead of Jimmy Garoppolo. If it was close in training camp, I think he would have gone with this rookie who adds the running. Uh, if it was close early in the season when is San Francisco going to be good or are, are they going to take a step back, he would have gone with him then. He is – even though Garoppolo has struggled recently and he had some really bad moments over the weekend, he has seen, Kyle has seen Jimmy Garoppolo execute this offense, this passing offense, more times than not in the last few years when he's healthy, he's seen him do it pretty well. And then I think you also have to take a step back and look at the NFC. There are only six teams with winning records right now. Seven are going to make the playoffs. So you start running down the list of the teams chasing that final wild card right now. And even though it's early to think that way, you can do the math. The teams at 500 or with losing records, San Francisco's got as much going for it if Garoppolo plays pretty well as any of those teams to claim that last spot. So uh, he's seen him do it before, and he knows one of these teams that's struggling right now is going to be playing in January. And I think Garoppolo gives him that best chance because what we've seen of Lance, he's just not there as a passer right now, or right now. And I think Cal knows that better than everybody. You know, the thing that would worry me about uh, the thing that would really worry me about this team. It, and, and look, it's it's a worry is that so many of their high draft choices just really are not panning out like their top three round draft picks. And, you know, and I give you uh, as exhibit a uh, Brandon Ayuk, who really when when he was drafted, with a first round pick uh, last year, I think the perception was he was going to be, he and Debo Samuel were going to be one of the great one-two combinations in football. And when I heard on, on the Sunday night game, Al Michaels say words to this effect that, you know, we talked to Kyle Shanahan. He just said, Hey, he's a great player. He just got to grind more, whatever Al said, man, that set off, that set off alarm bells. It really did. Because the one thing you should do when you're a rookie and you're a second year guy is you should be working your rear end off to be great in the NFL. That told me that either there's a sense of entitlement or the work ethic is not good. But more than that, Paul, it told me that the work that should have been done on Brandon Ayuk 
at Arizona State by the 49ers. Maybe they can look back at their process and say, we knew everything about him. He's just changed. I don't know. But that would worry me to spend a first round pick who then when he gets to your place, you have to worry about either his work ethic, his character, something like that. That would really bother me. So, and, and look, you've been around, you know that the effort that players give and the work that players do off the field, it's exemplified by Tom Brady. How did he get to the point in life where the 199th pick in the draft becomes the conqueror of Mount Bledsoe and then the greatest quarterback ever, perhaps? He got that way because he never stopped working. And I think that's a great example for players. And I don't know how you see it, but the Ayuk thing really bothers me. If, if that's true about, uh, about how the first part of his career has not been productive, we've all seen that based off of how he's worked or not worked, that then shame on him. But we have seen right. this before, guys at this point of their career who can excel. And this can be any professional league. They can come into the league and excel in college and they get there and figure out, oh my gosh, the, the grind level, the compete level is off the charts and it's brand new to me. I didn't have to do this before. And guys either figure it out in years two or three, or they don't. So if he hasn't figured it out yet, this, this uh, back half of the season where the Niners are sprinting to be that last team or one of the last teams to make the playoffs, they're going to need him in that passing game. So uh, he has a chance here, uh, an excellent chance to figure it out and be a part of what could be a big comeback here for the Niners. Paul, two other topics that I wanted to hit. Um, I want to know in your mind, what team out there, maybe it's Miami, maybe it's Carolina, maybe it's Philadelphia. I think it was very fortuitous for Houston general manager, Nick Casario, uh, to look at the NFL and the landscape in the NFL and to see Tua throwing a couple of bad interceptions on Sunday to see Sam Darnold get yanked by Carolina in yet another loss for the Panthers and to see the Eagles play so poorly on offense and figure that Howie Roseman, the general manager, Jeff Lurie, the owner, think almost certainly that they're going to be in the market for a quarterback sooner or later. And by later, I mean in the 2022 offseason. Do you think that one of those teams should trade for Deshaun Watson? If so, which one? I first want to ask a question and get, get uh, clarification in your understanding here, Peter. Are they still wanting three firsts over the next two or three years to, to pull off this deal? Is that, is that what's out there? Nick Casario is keeping it extremely close to the vest. Okay. I don't think anybody knows for sure what they want but I doubt you will see them trade Deshaun Watson without at least two solid number ones and then a conditional number one with the conditions being, uh, you know, look, if he's not on the field in the next two years or the next year and a half, then, you know, you won't get that third one. But I, and look, I don't know that, but someone in the NFL uh, theorized that to me over the weekend that maybe if, if you both figure that Deshaun Watson is going to play and probably play well at some point before the end of the 22 season, 
why don't you just make the third first round pick uh, contingent on something very simple that he plays 40% of the snaps uh, by the end of 2022. So, but yes, I do think in a practical, practically speaking, that it will take three ones to get him. This is such an unprecedented situation, Peter, with, with the unknowns that are out there with such a young, talented quarterback. Uh, the unknowns with what the legal system is going to do, uh, the unknowns with, with how the NFL will respond to that, and the unknowns with how your fan base will respond to you bringing in the face of the franchise w- with this kind of the last 12 to 24 months of his resume off the field. So because of that, I would, take, I would have to take the conditional picks to a brand new level of something we haven't seen before. I think one, number one, I, I think your, your first round pick at 22, great. Straight up, you can have it. I need the rest of those picks, whether it's a couple of ones, a one and a couple of twos. I need the rest of them to be as conditional as any draft picks that have ever had in the history of the NFL uh, because of the severity of those unknowns. So for one first and some really liberal conditional high picks coming up, I would consider it. But if I had to guarantee I'm giving up more than just one, I'm not doing it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Paul, uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier. It's rare, and I can't think of the last time, that the best game in the NFL on a given week was on Thursday night. Mm-hmm. And that is the case this week. Green Bay, whoever's going to wear the Green Bay uniform <laughs> this weekend or uh, this week, uh, they've got to find enough players to suit up and go to Arizona. But one of them is going to be Aaron Rodgers. So presumably, uh, how do you view that game? And tell me in your mind, how worried would you be if you're the Green Bay Packers and you go in so wounded to that game? Yeah, and the, the, the name right there, Devontae Adams, I mean, he may or may not be available with the COVID protocols. So he's as important as anybody on that team besides Aaron Rodgers. I'd be really concerned. If they had Devontae Adams, I think it's uh, – I mean, I would still think that Arizona should be the favorite. But without Devontae Adams, I mean, I look at Arizona as double digits better than the Green Bay Packers. If they do have him out there, it's still Arizona that's stronger really everywhere. You could say it's a tie at quarterback right now with the two leading MVP candidates in the NFC, but there's much more margin for error for Arizona. I mean, they can play pretty well and win. Green Bay would have to play its very best game, I think, even with Devontae Adams to win that one. I think it's a good point. I, I sort of look at this game and, you know, the other day watching a lot of the Packers game, first of all, I was – trans I was just transfixed kind of staring at the screen looking at their uniforms I love their uniforms the the beautiful forest green with bright yellow I thought that was perfect but watching that game I said to myself you know I think that anytime normally you lose great players like Zadarius Smith and, and Preston Smith and Jair Alexander, that is hugely dangerous for your defense. But their defense is really playing well. And I look at a young guy like uh, uh, like Rashawn Gary, and I, I basically say that 
when you pick a guy and he needs to take time to get good, I hate to say to get good at pro football, but that really strikes me as, you know, as to what happened with them. And, and to me, I kind of look at their team right now and they got a bunch of Rashawn Gary's on, on defense. That to me in that game against Washington, there was a marauding band of guys who you really don't know. And it was kind of led by, by Gary. He had two sacks, you know, uh, hit or pressured Taylor Heineke four more times. Uh, he forced a fumble. He was all over the field. And I said, look, as much as you want to criticize everything about the Green Bay franchise, you know, because of the Aaron Rodgers problems, I'll say this. They've drafted pretty well in mm -hmm. recent years. And this, to me, is just another example. It's a former first-round pick you haven't heard a lot of. But to me, I think that was a really fortuitous pick who came through at the right time for them. And he'll definitely need to do that against Kyler Murray on Thursday night. Yeah, because, I mean, really, it, it, uh, it's a simple way of looking at it, Peter. But one way you can look at this game a couple of days out is which defense has the better chance of giving a quarterback a bad game. And Aaron Rodgers struggled in the first game. But every game since, you add up losses and interceptions for Aaron Rodgers. That number is one. I mean, he, he's thrown one pick and they haven't lost. Kyler Murray's worst game, he played pretty well against San Francisco. It was pedestrian by his standards, but he hasn't had a bad game yet, and Aaron hasn't had a bad game since game one. So uh, can Rashawn Gary be part of giving Kyler his first bad game? We shall see. And as for the uniforms, Peter, my <laughs> high school, Iowa City West High School, okay, opened in 1969, and they, they, they're green and gold, and they designed their uniforms off of the Vince Lombardi Packers that had done so well wow. in the 60s. So wow. I tweeted at them yesterday um, that they ought to base them off of the uniforms in the 50s because those uniforms were even better. I mean, some of these throwback uniforms you just kind of laugh at, but those were uh, those are at the top of the list. And you know, some of the, hey, can, Paul, listen, yeah. some of those uniforms you don't laugh at, you throw up at. There you go. Um, like, you know, the Steelers convict uniforms and the oh Packers yeah. bizarre blue uniforms. Yeah. I don't know. To yeah. me, the, some of these things scream either A, Halloween costume or B, uh, you know, merchandise throwing of darts. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know. But anyway, it's kind of crazy. Hey, well, listen, yeah. thanks so much. Paul, for uh, you got breaking it. down the league with me after another very, very weird week. Uh, I appreciate it. We will get together again next week to talk about further weirdness in the National Football League. The Premier League is built on hope. The hope of discovering a new star. It doesn't take long, but Darwin Nunez to make an impression. The hope of rewriting history. of continuing a dynasty. Unstoppable week after week. This is the Premier League on NBC, USA and Peacock. I'm ready to go. Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. 
That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. <laughs> oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. At the theater, more than the movies come to life, movie lovers march in and skip the line with digital tickets to the latest movies on the free Fandango app. Ready to grab some snacks. Pick me! Pick me! And head to the best seats in the house for a night of romance, terror, and quality family screen time. <laughs> Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. Back on the podcast with Nikki Javala of the Washington Post. She's in her second year covering the team for that exalted publication. And uh, Nikki, I appreciate you joining me. I know you're covering the league meetings in New York this week, and there's an awful lot to cover for this football team. But how have you enjoyed it so far in your year and a half on duty? It's been very interesting. They keep me busy. So I, I'm, in, I'm enjoying it. Um, you know, there's, you learn a lot on this beat. I'll say that. You know, I, I think one of the interesting things when you cover a team is that you go and you cover a team and you have no idea what is going to happen. And you have no idea what the news is going to be, whether it comes on the field, whether it comes off the field. And to me, I think being a reporter at this time in your life is probably going to be, when you look back at your career, it, you're going to look at it and say, there was never a more important time than this era uh, in covering a team than, than covering Washington at this time. And, and I think particularly I look at sort of the, the swirl of news around covering Daniel Snyder. And I know over time, the Post has had a really lousy relationship with Daniel Snyder. And I wonder how difficult has it been for you and the paper to cover this story with the sexual harassment claims against him because of that? Yeah, I mean, the, the good thing about the Washington Post is we have so many tremendous resources, so many tremendous reporters. So it doesn't just fall on me, the beat reporter. Um, we have so many people like Will Hobson and Liz Clark and um, Beth Reinhardt who are, who are so well versed in this um, that we're able to all jump in and pull together our skills and, and really get what we need um, no matter the circumstances. And I, I think that's the job of a reporter. You know, it's not going to be handed to you. It's not going to be easy, but you've got to find some way to get the information you need. And um, I feel fortunate that I'm at the post because we have those resources, but it, it is difficult at times. Um, you know, I, I, you always come into this thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to cover football. It's going to be great. But you know, that's, that's the beauty of sports journalism in my mind is it always transcends the sport. It's never just about that. It's always, you, you're talking about business. You're talking about health. You're talking about social matters. You know, you're, in, in some ways covering Congress, sometimes covering the DEA. So um, it's always different and, and it challenges you as a reporter. So I, I enjoy it. You know, I, I think back in 1978 when I interviewed for the job that you now have, I was covering the Giants at Newsday 
and I went down to interview uh, at the Washington Post with then sports editor George Solomon. And he said to me at the end of the interview, um, I want you to go meet Ben Bradley. And I said, oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, might, I might be asking this guy for his autograph. But anyway, um, I, I, I went in and met him. And he said to me during the course of the conversation that, you know, clearly um, this is <clears throat> other than the White House. And, and he said, and maybe the Supreme Court, this is the most important beat on the paper covering the football team. But, and I bring that up only because it just seems so different now. It because, is. you know, you look at the stands at a Washington home game and, you know, if it's a mediocre game late in the year, there's nobody there. You know, mm -hmm. there's so many empty seats. I've heard stories about how desperate they are to sell tickets um, and all that. So as you look at this franchise right now, what's the biggest issue confronting it to try to get back to the days of hail to the WFT, so to speak? Right. Well, I think there are two and probably equally important is one, um, the culture around the organization, making sure it's a respectable franchise, one that fans can root for. And, and I think a lot of what Jason Wright and his team over there is, is geared toward doing that. It's going to be difficult. Is it possible? I don't know yet. We'll see. Um, but, you know, they got 20 years, really, that they're trying to, you know, climb out of. Um, it was a pretty dark 20 years for this franchise. And that's why those stands are empty. I, I think fans for the Washington football team, are still incredibly loyal. I mean, they have an incredible fan base, but they've been through a lot. Um, you know, they, they've been promised change. They've seen people come in and out who believe they can fix the team and it never works out. Um, they've seen quarterbacks cycle in and out. It's, it's kind of the same story every time. So to really build up that trust again in these fans, it's, it's going to take some time and it's, they're going to have to win. Frankly, uh, I thought last year was a good start the start to this season has been tough, um, especially with everything else going around. Um, so to get, to get people in those seats, you, you got to start winning and, and you got to prove that this change is real. What's your opinion of the new management team led by Jason Wright? I think he's hired some incredibly smart people. Um, they've come from primarily outside sports, which is good. At times it can create issues. Like you think about the Sean Taylor Jersey retirement. Um, I kind of felt like if they had more people in there who knew about the franchise, who knew about um, the general workings of, you know, how this is done in the NFL, maybe it wouldn't have gone the way it did and, and created so much controversy, but I think he's, tried to implement a, a lot of really good changes. I just think at some point, if it hasn't already, there's going to be a demand for a return on that investment because they did invest a lot in that leadership group. And, and then what, um, you know, is there going to be a timeline on, on when they can really get this thing together? If it's not to, um, you know, Dan Snyder's liking financially, does it all end? Does he blow it all up? Um, you know, what happens when Dan Snyder officially, unofficially um, returns and, and uh, assumes full control? I would imagine Tanya Snyder would still have some role, but, you know, what happens then? And that's always been the question for this franchise. You know, it, you bring in some people for change, but 
eventually you feel like it's not going to last. And will this one last? We'll see. You know, that's, it brings me to the future of Snyder. Do you have any feeling, what do your sources tell you or, or NFL sources tell you or anybody at the post now about when Daniel Snyder returns to basically full power? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I remember, I believe it was on that conference call after they released or not really released the Wilkinson findings, um, said at least through the fall meetings, which is now that, you know, he, he would not be um, controlling the day-to-day -day duties, you know, whether they continue to say that and he's more on the longer term projects with the stadium, fine. I still think as Dan Snyder, as owner of this franchise, he's going to be heavily involved no matter what. Um, and, and what that means for the team, you know, could be good or bad. The track record has not been great. Um, so it's, it's going to be a matter of how he delegates that power. Um, to me, the bigger issue is, you know, what happens to that leadership team? What happens to, to Jason Wright? Who, who does he still have the authority he needs to continue to make changes in that front office? Never know. As you, as you sort of look at, the franchise right now. Let's talk a little bit about football. I was really interested in seeing how Taylor Heineke would do over an extended period because last year after the playoff game, when he played so well and quite frankly, so valiantly against Tampa Bay in the wild card game, I said, I'd love to see this guy get a chance. Mm -hmm. And I've seen him get a chance. And I'm not sure what to think of them other than to say, if I'm Washington, I'm still quarterback prospecting. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't think that I've seen enough to say, I want to hand the franchise to this guy to give him a, a, a significant midterm opportunity to be this quarterback. What do you think the football side of this organization is thinking about the quarterback position right now? Yeah, I, I think they probably view him similarly. Like he can be a a very good backup, a starter when you need him. Um, I think the biggest thing with him is he's inexperienced. And you, you kind of knew that at some point after those first couple games, um, maybe defenses would start to figure him out. I mean, covered the Broncos for six years, many of those after Peyton Manning's retirement. So you saw sort of the same thing where, you know, guys like Trevor Simeon would come in, have some really incredible two games. And you're like, wow, who's this kid? And then the defenses start to figure him out and it kind of unravels. Um, Heineke has a really interesting skill set. He, he's mobile. Uh, he's a smart player. Doesn't have the strongest arm. Accuracy is a little bit of an issue, but um, you, you can kind of see where the coaches tell him something and he corrects at the next game. Um, the problem with this situation is they don't have a ton of time. They have, a, they have talent on defense. Um, it was a good defense last year. They have talent there. They got to figure out all their issues there, but they can get that side together. The question is how long will they have that group together? And you, my belief is you're only going to go so far as your quarterback will take you in this league. Um, so while the defense can be great until they find a quarterback, it's, it's, you know, you're only going to go so far. So I believe they, they are very much in the quarterback hunt. I, I think they're always going to be until they find somebody they think can help them win, can help them win for a while. Are they, do you think they're, as we, as we record this, we're one week away from the trading deadline. 
And I wonder, first of all, I wonder if Deshaun Watson's going to get traded, period. But to me, Washington's one of four or five teams that I think of when I say, geez, could he get traded and who'd be interested? You think they have any legitimate interest and might they be players in this next week for Deshaun Watson? I would be very surprised if they were, um, you know, I was, I was told adamantly that they were not in, they have not had any talks with Houston or Miami regarding Tua, So they didn't want to, but you know, Ron Rivera has stressed over his what year and a half, almost two years here that he wants to find the right type of players, the right character. And while the legal case is pending on Deshaun Watson, that's, that's a big gamble right there. And, you know, they've also said they don't want to mortgage to the future to one Position Well, they would have to if they want to trade for Deshaun Watson, given the asking price from Houston. So does it make sense for them as a rebuilding team to give up all those picks to mean it? No, absolutely not. They have so many holes to fill on that roster. But and you also don't know, like, what, what is his status? Can he play? Um, what is, until his legal case is resolved, I would be very hesitant to pull the plug on that. Could you imagine the firestorm among women's groups and quite frankly, human groups. Yeah. If after getting into this incredibly damaging and divisive sexual har harassment uh, investigation in their organization, if they cast their lot for the future with a guy who I mean, I doubt he's going to do jail time or anything, but or prison time. But a guy who is under investigation for some of the seediest and most offensive uh, sexual accusations that we've heard in a while. So on the surface, it might seem like, hey, why don't you get involved with one of the best young quarterbacks in football? But you delve in a little bit deeper and you say, man, you talk about something that would bring the protesters, there'd be more people outside FedEx field than at their next home game than there would be inside at FedEx mm -hmm. field, I think. And I, I think Ron Rivera is very cognizant of that. I, I, I can't see him bringing that to the organization, giving everything um, that they're going through now and, and just period. Um, you know, I, I think he's very aware of the circumstances and, um, you know, is, is trying to do what's best for the team on and off the field. Um, you know, it would be great to have his talent. I can see that from, you know, football side, but there's a lot more going in here that I think any owner, any coach, any executive, I would hope would consider. As a woman in football, I would hope would consider. <laughs> um, Nikki, I'm going to end with a question about our business, just because I'm curious about it. I've been asking a lot of beat people just because I'm curious and it may be a little bit too much of an inside baseball question, but what's it been like to cover a team that you're, that you're expected to know everything about for the last year and a half in the time of COVID where you can't have the same kind of relationships with players and people inside the team because you just simply can't be around them the same way. The locker rooms aren't open. You don't have the same sort of one-on-one -on -one access to people. So tell me what it's been like. 
It's it's been difficult, um, especially starting on a new beat with a completely new regime. Um, last year, Ron Rivera and his staff came in, so you know I, I hadn't stood in front of Ron Rivera in, in person, at least not for more than a hundred feet, really, um, until really this past January, and, and that's that's difficult. We we were fortunate at the post in that we we still traveled. Um, so we were able to get to see a little bit more on the road, but it, you know, you occasionally see these guys and, you know, you wave to Ron Rivera and you realize, oh my gosh, he has no idea who I am because I'm wearing a mask. He doesn't recognize me. It's, it's very, it's weird. Um, so trying to establish those relationships with people you've never met on a new beat, um, it, it's difficult, um, but you gotta, you gotta find a way, right? So, you know, it, Requires a lot of phone calls, a lot of, you know, taking chances on, hey, will you just talk to me by Zoom just informally? I just want to introduce myself. You have to get creative. And in some ways, I think that's, you know, the silver lining of this from a reporting standpoint is it really challenges you. Um, you got to find new ways to make connections. And and some of these methods are going to last, you know, so you got to get used to them. Um, but it really forces you out of your comfort zone to find new ways to build that trust, meet new people, and, and ultimately get the information you need. I think one of the things that I respect about the people doing the job now is exactly what you said. Because, look, I, I know this from having done it for a long time that I would say somewhere between the majority to vast majority of good contacts that I've made are in some ways accidental mm -hmm. and by chance. And yeah. that is, I mean, it's just like, and I'll give you an example. It's just like uh, three years ago when I was at Broncos training camp, I was going to do a story about the, uh, these bookend pass rushers, mm -hmm. um, Von Miller and Bradley Chubb and Patrick Smythe, the PR guy said, you know, you, you really might want to um, you really might want to talk to uh, their coach, uh, a guy who's a young guy, really bright guy, a uh, guy named Brandon Staley. Well, I had vaguely heard of Brandon Staley, but I take out my NFL record and fact book and I read about Brandon Staley. Mm -hmm. And and the thought occurs to me. Two years ago, this guy was a defensive coordinator in the Ohio Athletic Conference. He's playing Heidelberg and Baldwin Wallace. And I mean, at, at, you know, he's a, a coach there. And I just, so I met him and we had maybe a half hour conversation. And I just said, now this guy is going to be really, really good. Mm -hmm. And from that half hour conversation, now I form the kind of relationship with him where this year at training camp with the Chargers, now that he's the head coach, Mm -hmm. I was able to just basically sit in on a coach's meeting and watch how he delegates authority and, and all that stuff. But those kind of things need to happen right. for you to get really good at your job because those are the people. I didn't have any idea what would happen to Brandon Staley, whether he'd even be still in football three years from now. But when you cover a team or when you're around a team, you get to sort of zero in on certain guys who you respect. And that was always in the back of my mind. Wherever I go from now on, wherever he's coaching, I'm going to make sure that I keep in touch with this guy. So that's, that's one of the things that I think, I'm not saying it's been lost, 
but it's been damaged a little bit by the last year and a half. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, I'm guilty of this too. And I, I, you sometimes forget that the coaches, the players, they also remember a lot of interactions. They see a lot of things, especially on social media. Um, you know, I, I, I had a conversation with Brandon Staley shortly after he came on to talk about, you know, Chubb and Vaughn. And I never thought that he would remember my name or like, you know, re- even remember that conversation. He probably talks to a ton of people every day. But, you know, when when I left the Broncos beat to go to the post, he was one of the first people to text me. And I'm like, wow, he remembered that. Like, and I, I feel like sometimes I, I don't it, we don't give a lot of these players and coaches enough credit to, to what they see and, and what they retain. Like I just the other day, I, I remember last year I tweeted something before a game of John Matsko, the of Washington's offensive line coach. He works with a lot of the linemen pregame just on uh, footwork, hand placement. And I was always fascinated by this because I feel like I learn more about the position when I'm watching them and had no idea that, you know, John Matsko would happen to see that or his grandkids would see that on Twitter. And, you know, the, the other day he saw me standing outside the media room and said, I just wanted to introduce myself. You're the one that posted that video of me and David Steinmetz. And we had a very nice conversation. And it's like, you forget some of these things. So I, it, that's, that's unfortunately where, you know, you, these connections are built through Twitter or, you know, one-off conversations, but they're just as important. So you got to make the best of it. You know, that you don't get that locker room time. I'm not sure we'll ever get that locker room time again, but um, those little interactions still really matter. Well, you know, I do want to bring up um, before we go your your story on Sunday about Nathaniel Hackett, the offensive coordinator of the Green Bay Packers. He'll be in the news this week because the apparently shorthanded Packers are going to play the best team in football on Thursday night uh, in Arizona. But that was a really good example, in my opinion in reporting a story about a person and all the things he brings to his job because he's such a well-rounded, interesting guy who's got so many other interests outside of football. And I thought what was so interesting about the story is that one of the reasons that he has such a good relationship with Aaron Rodgers, this is just me reading between the lines, you would know, one of the reasons he has such a good relationship with Aaron Rodgers is that Aaron Rodgers looks at him as a full person. Yes. Not just a football nerd because he's got so many other interests. Aaron Rodgers, I think on July 1st of this year, if you had said to him, okay, I'm giving you your choice, play quarterback for the green Bay Packers this year or host jeopardy this year, what would you do? I think absolutely. He would have said host jeopardy. And so he wants that well-rounded, fun person. Just tell me a little bit about how you found out about Nathaniel Hackett and how you developed that story. Yeah. So I met Nathaniel Hackett at a QB Collective event in uh, Indianapolis in the spring um, through Richmond Flowers. Um, And it was just a a chance to get to know. Richmond Flowers, an agent for coaches. Correct. Yes. He he has QB Collective and um, he has a lot of, coaches who, who work within this, uh, Rich Gangarello, Vic Fan, uh, 
Vic's one of his clients. I don't know that he's involved with QB Collective, but um, you know, it, it's kind of this inner network. A lot of a lot of coaches from the Shanahan tree, really. Um, you know, and they they have these you know annual sharing of ideas. I think it's really cool from a coaching's perspective, but they also train quarterbacks and um, you know share teaching tools, but also teach what they know. Um, so it was a good chance to meet a lot of coaches and I met him there and he's just one of those people where you're like, wow, you are very much not like anybody in the NFL. And he's just so, as, as Aaron Rodgers said, he's very disarming. Um, you know, it's, it's so easy to talk to him. He, He doesn't talk down to you. He's so, you know, enthusiastic. He's such a happy person. Um, he's hilarious. Um, and you realize, wow, there's so much more to this person than just football. He's a football guy through and through. Um, but there's so much more there. I mean, he's, he's brilliant, um, loves wine. And I think that's another thing where him and Aaron Rodgers really bonded. Um, but you know, it's, it's his personality and the way he comes off the way he teaches, he just really has a way about him where he can get information across and make you remember it by the way he delivers it. I mean, in this teaching session I got to sit in on, it was hysterical. I mean, it was, you know, clips of fans screaming and old clips of Brett Favre and, um, you know, Joe Montana and some of Aaron Rodgers and just the commentary in between. It was his personality made it funny. His use of technology, you know, made it engaging And because of all that, you retain the information. It's not just like learning a new language from a textbook. You know, you remember laughing about something and, oh, yeah, this is what we were talking about. That's what it means. It's 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 really a brilliant way to teach. And you wish you had more teachers like that. So he's just an interesting guy, very nice guy. And I you know, it's it was fun learning more about him from his his other quarterbacks because he's just hilarious i can't imagine hearing a justin timberlake play call in the headset so (laughs) nikki javala thanks so much for taking the time and continued success i appreciate it thanks peter my thanks to paul burmeister and to nikki javala of the washington post for their help look forward to another fun week uh in the national football league another unpredictable week in the National Football League. And I appreciate you listening to the Peter King Podcast.